Hi, I'm Jennifer Ackerman Haywood, and you're listening to the Craft Sanity Podcast. This is a weekly interview show that is all about art, craft, and creativity. I produce it in the hope that it will help all of us live long and crafty lives. So let's get to it, folks. It's time to craft sanity. everyone welcome to episode 72 of the craft sanity podcast this week my guest is lisa ann auerbach she's the woman behind steal the sweater that great website where she basically features her machine knitted sweaters that have political messages she's looking to incite people to do more than just knit a basic scarf she kind of came to the front of my guest wish list when i saw the book knit knit by sabrina geschwantner I interviewed Sabrina for episode 61 of this podcast, and Lisa's profile was right there in the front, and I thought, oh, yeah, I totally want to interview this woman. Listen closely, because there's an opportunity for you to get involved in Lisa's current art project. After you finish listening, please check out craftsanity.com for links to all of Lisa's websites and latest projects, and also I'm going to post the link to the body count mittens pattern that she actually let me post originally back when I interviewed Sabrina. So, okay, let's get to that interview. How did you come to be a knitter? I learned from a library book. How old were you? Uh, like 25 or something. I had just graduated from graduate school, and I was doing photography in graduate school primarily. When I graduated, I lost my darkroom access, so I had to figure out something else to do. So I learned to knit. Well, I was also obsessed with this band called Cheap Trick. Mm-hmm. And I was in uh, graduate school. Yeah. And Rick Nielsen wears these amazing custom sweaters. And so I wanted to knit a Cheap Trick sweater for myself. Awesome. So Cheap Trick was the original inspiration. All the Rick Nielsen sweaters were what made me want to knit. And then I checked out a bunch of books from the library, like uh, America's Knitting Book by... I forgot her name, Gertrude something, and I don't remember what other books. And, and I learned to knit from those. And did you find that difficult, or did you take to it pretty easily? Well, that's why I had multiple books, because if one illustration didn't make sense in one book, then I would pick up the next book, and maybe it, it was a little clearer. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it, it worked out fine. This is before you, you could, like, get online and look at little videos. Right, and watch a YouTube things, video so. of someone knitting. How soon after that did you start knit, doing machine knitting? Because I, I know that's what you're way into right now. Um, I didn't do any machine knitting until, let's see, I graduated from grad school in like 94. Where did you go to grad school? At Art Center in Pasadena. And I couldn't afford a knitting machine. And I didn't buy a knitting machine until 2004. Wow. So were you knitting so, messages into sweaters before that, just hand knitting them? Um, I was knitting some with text and things like the first thing I ever knitted had my name in it and then I knit one I've knit a few hand knit things I knit a bunch of hats you know with people's names or whatever little icons um they didn't it it, I wanted to do political knitting for a long time and it wasn't really you can't really do it by hand because by the time the sweater's finished the issue's kind of over (laughs) right so it's So the, so the early sweaters were like, I made a Jewish star one, and I made one just with, I, I made a couple that just have my name on them, mm-hmm. kind of more practicing and, and just learning to knit. Right, and you figured you weren't probably going to change your name. 
you know, by the end of the project. So that was probably a, something. No, no. I mean, and that with. was the thing about the Rick Nielsen sweaters is they always had like cheap trick on them. So I thought, oh, well, I'm going to make a sweater with my name on it. So the mm-hmm. first sweater I ever made had my name in the hood. Cool. Do you yeah. still wear it? Well, the first sweater, I'm sure everyone has like the nightmare first project. <laughs> right. It's a lopy sweater with a zipper and a hood with, um, you know, like design all over it and or not all over it, just on the cuffs and the, and the bottom. But I made it according to the pattern, which calls for a number 10 needles. Oh. Okay. And I made it on brown with brown sheep worsted weight, and I didn't really know enough about gauge. So it fits okay, but it's a little bit droopy. Yeah. You know, it's like a little bit kind of just wonky. It The fit is okay, but it's just the, the weave is not right. So that was kind of disappointing because I did do the, gu- the gauge checks and the, and the math and all that, but in the end I didn't realize that, like, the actual kind of fabric is affected by the size of the needles too. So, no, I don't really wear that one very much. Yeah, well, you still have it, though, so you can pull Yeah, it I have out, it. You know. I'm actually wearing one right now that has my name on it that was a hand-knit sweater. So were sweaters your first? Is that where it really started? Like you had messages on sweaters? I mean, is that which, when? Well, the first, yeah, I mean, the first sweaters, the hand-knit sweaters were more akin to the cheap trick thing. Okay. Where it would just be like sweaters with my name or motifs or whatever. And there's only a few of those. And then I made a few things for friends. But it wasn't until 2004 when a friend of mine who works at a museum said that he would like to wear a John Kerry T-shirt, but that T-shirts were not allowed at work, that it kind of popped into my mind that this was what the sweater should be, is something that you could wear in a more formal atmosphere like work or you know, somewhere where you, you didn't feel like you could wear a T-shirt, right, but you right. could wear a sweater. And so in June of 2004, I figured out what knitting machine I would need to make my my fantasy real, and I got this knitting machine thinking that it was June of, of 2004, and by July or August when the, when the Republican convention in New York was going to happen, I would have already made hundreds and hundreds of sweaters that all of my friends and protesters would be able to wear in the street. So this was, of course, insane because, <laughs> you know, I, I had this idea that machine equals it's done, push the button, and out comes a sweater. <laughs> right. I didn't realize that the learning curve on a knitting machine is like Mount Everest. <laughs> right. You know, it's not like push a button and get a sweater. It's like a huge pain in the ass. <laughs> so that obviously didn't happen. There, were, there was one skirt that went to that, to that protest that said, Bush is a turkey. <laughs> and that's the, only, that's the only thing I managed to make by then. Now, were you wearing the skirt, or did you send that with a friend? My friend Kate was wearing it. Yeah, well, that's hilarious. So that took, that was several hours in the making, though, it sounds like. It was several months to figure out, you know. <laughs> I mean, even to figure out how to make, how to cast on on the knitting machine. Because here I am in this void in Los Angeles, and knowing, well, I did know machine knitters, but I was kind of afraid to talk to them about my project. Right, because it's political and it's probably different than most machine knitters. You know, they're trying to make sweaters for the grandchildren or something, not some political... That's pretty much true. I, yeah. I went to the Los Angeles San Fernando machine knitters group in order to learn about knitting machines. Mm-hmm. They all suggested I get this really simple, simple machine to learn on. But, but really, I didn't really care about learning about machine knitting. I only cared about knitting messages into 
knitting. So you're really focused on the end product as opposed to yeah, working I was like, your way up they, on machines. I, I showed up at that machine knitting, and it was almost like the terrorist <laughs> who didn't care about taking off or landing, but just wanted to be able to steer the airplane. Oh, like, you know, it was like... <laughs> they they wanted to talk to me about necklines and doing neat cast-ons and neat cast-offs and, like, <laughs> lacy fabric. And, you know, I didn't give a shit. All I wanted to do was I wanted to be able to knit text into the fabric. Oh, goodness. So how long did you last at that, that gathering of machine knitters? I think it was two meetings. Yeah, and then you just... Did they decide well, that you didn't, they didn't want you back or you decided to no, remove no, yourself? No, no, they no. All, they all had... <laughs> I actually bought a machine, a very simple machine, from one of the members. Uh-huh. I made one hat on it, and I realized there was no way I could do what I wanted to do. And so I found the machine that I'm using now, which is a pass-up. It was something that was referred to within the group as something really scary. Like, oh, yeah, you could do that on the pass-up. Oh, she can't do it on a pass-up. You know, oh, like, yeah. Oh, the pass-up. Like, don't go there. You know, the pass-up. It's too, it's too difficult. It's, it's really finicky, which it is. But I ended up getting that anyway and and then I think I went back at one point and I was like look I got the pass up and here's some stuff I made and and they were all like oh that's nice everyone's I mean everyone's very nice (laughs) yeah they're fine yeah you just had a different I mean obviously you were looking to make art on this thing the machine knitting world is very interesting because they're very interested in making things that look machine made and to me that's like why would you make something that you can buy right Right. But that's not really the attitude. Like, I thought, oh, God, they're just making stuff that looks like to just get it off the shelf like that. So I don't really, it's not really, I didn't get it, I guess. So is, are these machines pretty expensive? Like, it sounds like you, so do you have, like, the Cadillac of knitting machines? Is that what you had to get? Um, to, to well, do? I wouldn't say the Cadillac, because I don't think the Cadillac has that much mechanical power. <laughs> <laughs> the Cadillac, you can actually, like, get in and start and drive across town, and it would not get it I have more, like... Maybe, or maybe, I don't know. So, I mean, are they expensive? They're not inexpensive. Yeah. I mean, so if someone wants to get one of these, we're talk- talking a thousand bucks or more? or A thousand bucks or more. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And how long did it take you to feel like you really had a good grasp of how to use the thing? I still don't feel like I have a really good grasp. <laughs> okay. And it's been, what, four years now? Yeah. 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 yeah, so they weren't I mean, joking. Always, Those ladies weren't joking when they said it's kind of a scary machine. No, I'm always learning something new about it and about its sort of finickiness and, and kind of discovering its quirks. It's just, you know, it's like being married a little bit. Yeah, yeah, over time, more secrets come out, you know. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> so have you been able to connect with any other machine knitters that are using it for artistic purposes or radical expression or political expression as opposed to... Um, you know, other applications that might be more traditional? There's one woman who has emailed me. I think she might be in South Carolina or somewhere, and she's really excited about what I'm doing, and she went out and bought the same knitting machine, and she's going to be doing political knitting also. Oh, okay. Okay. So She's, there... a, she's the only person that, that was – I mean, people always email me and say, like, oh, I love your stuff. I wish I could do it. But no one's really, like, gone and bought a knitting machine except this one woman – and I haven't heard from her in a couple of months, so I don't know how she's doing. Yeah, in her battle. And then I did, I did find a machine knitter to help me knit. I just knit a, a yurt. Yeah, I want to talk about that. That looks awesome. Yeah, so yeah. I just found a machine knitter that helped me, and she did seven of the of the panels. How many panels it. are there on that yurt? 
There's 17 panels around the side, and then the, the roof is about, it's sewn together. It's, it's about 11 by 11 um, feet. Wow. And it's made up of, I think, seven panels. Wow. Yeah. So how many months did that take? It took one month. Just one month, okay. Yeah. And so was that knitting every single day, working on this thing? It was really stressful. It was working every single day. I basically, it was a it was a commissioned project, and I got approval for the project on January fourteenth, and I installed the project on February fourteenth. Oh my goodness! So wow. it, was, it was a little bit of panicking and, and like freaking out. Wow! But you got it done. I got it done. And you're still standing. You I'm know. Still standing. Was there a collapse at the end, or you felt pretty good at the end there? No, I mean, whatever. You just got to move on to the next thing. Yeah. So well, tell us tell us about this yurt. And who, who commissioned this? It's for an organization called V-Day. Do you know about V-Day? They do the um, vagina monologues? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So Eve Ensler, who wrote the vagina monologues, um, the, the story, so the lore of what V-Day is, is that she started performing the vagina monologues all over the country, and afterwards women would come up to her and tell her their own stories, their personal stories. And she realized that most of the stories women were sharing with her were about uh, abuse or violence against women in some way. Mm -hmm. And so she decided that she wanted to use the play to stop all violence against women to eradicate violence against women from the planet. Mm -hmm. And so she started this thing called V-Day. And it's been now 10 years. And what V-Day is is that local organizations can stage their own productions of the giant monologues and give back all of the um, monies that they raise to local community organizations. And it's and great. So I mean, I've, I know in Grand Rapids they do an annual production. I've gone to see it, and it's fabulous production and I love the cause I mean it's really great so you were commissioned by Eve what this was is this the event that the yurt was at was a fundraiser for a giant v-day um, extravaganza that's going to happen in New Orleans on April 11th and 12th okay which includes taking over the Superdome and making and having all these workshops and information booths and all sorts of things happening in the Superdome for two days for women of New Orleans, and then also this very star-studded um, production of the Vagina Monologues with Oprah Winfrey and I don't know who else. Um, wow. That's going to happen at the arena in New Orleans. So it's this huge V to the 10th, 10th anniversary extravaganza in New Orleans, and this event at the Hammerstein Ballroom in New York was fundraising for that. And so I was commissioned to do, they wanted to commission an artist to knit a giant vagina, and I suggested that we do a yurt, and she was really excited about that. So and we did were... a yurt. So all the text is all slogans that Eve gave me, and then I designed also using um, the vagina monologue text, some of, some stuff that I chose from there. So none of it's my well, a little bit of my text, most of it's her text. Okay, and was that different? Was that the first time that you've ever used somebody else's text in a in a project? That's the first time I've ever been assigned to use someone else's text in a project. Oftentimes, my 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 work uses other people's text. Like I did a sweater that had a George Bush speech on it. Oh yeah. So there there are there are instances where I use other people's text, and a lot of times, I mean, all my my sweaters that were asking people what their favorite thing about the war on terror, the answers were all things that people had given me. I see. So 
but this is the first time that I was sort of like assigned, like, okay, here's what you're going to do. Mm -hmm. And what was that experience like compared to what um, you normally do? Well, it was great because I have this idea that the work can function in the world in some way and that it can make a difference in people's lives. And I feel like Eve is someone that actually is living that in a really great way. Mm -hmm. She really is an activist. And so it was really kind of an honor to use her language and to see how that would work in terms of the knitting. Like, what, what does that, how does that language change when it becomes part of this fabric that then is part of the structure that people are going inside of and telling stories. So it was really interesting for me to do that. And is this the biggest commission that you've ever been part of, I mean, been asked well, to do? Yeah, I mean, it's the only commission I've ever done, but it's also the biggest thing I've ever knit. Yeah, well, it's really fantastic. I mean, that's quite a compliment, too, to your work, too, to be brought on the national scale. I mean, you have Oprah involved in this and Eve and everybody. <laughs> I mean, this is no small thing. I mean, that's awesome. Congratulations to you. Well, Oprah wasn't, I didn't meet Oprah. No, I, I don't want to suggest there. that. No, I'm just saying when you have Oprah linked to a project and then you're right, asked to commission, right, right. you know, by association, that's pretty huge, you know. Um. Well, I have to tell you, though, I did meet Jane Fonda. You did. Brazil, and that was really exciting. Yeah. <laughs> so did you get to talk to her? Yeah, yeah. Jane Fonda. We introduced ourselves to Jane Fonda and she was like, I love your yurt. It's fantastic. And I <laughs> I was like, oh, my God, Jane Fonda. And she looks amazing. Yeah. She's 71 years old, I think. Oh, my goodness. Incredible. Wow. I would never. I like, well, I think it's a Jane Fonda workout. Yeah, it must be. I'll have to get some tapes or something. Yeah. yeah. The DVD. So. Holy smokes. Yeah. 71? Pretty. Goodness. Or 74. I don't know. She was pretty incredible. Wow. Like, gorgeous. And she did a segment from the Vagina Monologues, one of the monologues, and it was like, wow. Wow. That's, that's impressive. Yeah. So, so you you finished that, and now are, what, what's your next project? Um, well, I'm doing. Um, um, I'm going to put some sweaters at the Yerba Buena Center for the Arts in San Francisco at the end of March. Okay. And some of them are going to be new. So I have to make some more sweaters, and some of them will be old. And then um, I'm. I have another show up there, but. That's not knitting. And then I'm doing this other show that I'm really excited about in the summer, early summer in Baltimore. And I'm uh, asking my friends to write religious tracts that aren't necessarily religious. And then I'm going to publish them in these unlimited editions so that people can come in and take the religious tracts. Interesting. And so this so that's be... what I'm working on right now. Okay, so you're having your friends, putting your friends to work here. Well, yeah, I've yeah. invited, like, uh, hundreds of people to write their own text for the track. Interesting. So it seems like you really like to have, to draw as many people into your work as possible, like, by asking whether it's your favorite thing about the war on, war on terror or whatever. You like to en engage people at that level and make them part of your work? Yeah. yeah. I like to take advantage of my friends. <laughs> You know, you said you have another show, but it's not knitting. What else, what other things do you do that you exhibit? Oh, I have a, um, I have a bunch of zines, and this one show, I, I do this zine called Battle Sore, which is about riding my bicycle in Los Angeles. Yeah, and that and one's available, that one's, isn't that available through your website now? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's my website. So, um... The curator wanted me to reproduce the four saddle store covers as posters. So I'm, I have to find the negatives and scan them and make them into posters. 
and the covers of the magazine are always like these kind of sexy-ish pictures of me with my bicycle, but I'm never on my bicycle. Like there's something really important about that. I'm never on my bike, but I'm with my bike. So it's four <laughs> pictures of me with my bicycle looking kind of whatever, sexy, I guess. Yeah, so who takes these pictures? Um, the first cover was, was shot by Chris Buck, who's a, um, he's a New York photographer, celebrity photographer. Mm-hmm. And then the second two were shot by Daniel Marlowe, who's someone I've collaborated with for years. And the fourth one I did with a self-timer. Okay. Now, because photography is your main, your main thing. I mean, that's what you studied in college. And is that what you teach now, too? Yeah, I teach digital photography. And you, where, do, where do you teach? At University of Southern California. Okay. So is that, are you full-time there? Is that a full-time? No. No? Okay. I'm so, adjunct. Okay. So is, is art, how do you, I guess I'm trying to get at, how do you spend, I mean, are you full-time artist and you kind of teach on the side or how would you describe yourself? Right now? Yeah. Well, I teach two days a week and I, and I do other stuff. I guess. I do more art than teaching because right now I'm really crazy busy. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I guess I'm both. Well, do you like that, the way, the division of your time right now? I mean, do you like the fact that you're spending more time on art? Because I think there are a lot of people who are in jobs and they're kind of fantasize about, man, I wish I had more time to do my art. And then sometimes when you're doing art full time, people are like, geez, I wish I had more income. You know, I mean, it's like, it's this horrible, ba- you know, you try to strike a balance between those two aspects of life. But is right. that... How do you feel about your situation right now? It's very difficult right now to finish all of my commitments while I'm teaching. Mm-hmm. And it can re- be really frustrating. Yeah. So next semester I'm taking the semester off, and we'll see what happens. And do, are you, do you still take um, your photos to exhibit? I mean, are you doing art photography, or is most of your art knitting related now? No, I do photography as well. I, mean, I just had an exhibition in December, which was, knitting and photography together and I think they're very related in a lot of ways. So let's get back to your your zines. I, I know you've been you got did you get into making zines before you got into the knitting or at what point did you become a zine maker? Um, also when I graduated from school I actually did a few like kind of exhibition catalog Xerox things when I was still in school mm-hmm. and then when I graduated I mean if you're if you're doing something that's really dependent on the technical um, facilities of a school like photography is yeah when you get out into the cold cruel world you either stop making art you change gears or you pay a lot of money to rent equipment and and keep doing what you were doing and and I really thought and I still think I mean when I talk to students that if you're going to make art if you're an artist if you just are thinking about the world in, in that kind of way that there's no reason that you need expensive stuff or gear to make your work, that you should be able to make any sort of statement like on the, on the cheap or on the expensive, but it, it shouldn't really interfere. So the fact that I was away from large color printing facilities was totally a bummer because I was really excited about photography, but also it wasn't the end of the world. And, and I got a job soon after leaving school at Griffith Observatory, which is a big kind of landmark observatory here in Los Angeles in Griffith Park. And I was part of the photo staff. And the photo staff was me and Daniel Marlos, who 
I had mentioned earlier as being one of the Saddle Corps cover photographers, but he and I had gone to school together, and then he and I worked together at the observatory as the photographic staff. Mm -hmm. And while we were at the observatory, we this people were always asking us, like, well, what do you guys do? Because we were kind of all over the place at the observatory, getting into everybody's business and everything and having a lot of fun with it. And so we decided to start this publication, which was about our jobs. <laughs> so we started a publication called The Casual Observer, which was about working at Griffith Observatory in the dark room. And was basically our logbook, with the photographic staff logbook, um, published so that people can see exactly what we were up to. And then it expanded into other things like the potluck reviews and you know, the <laughs> shop, the people who worked in the shop had their own section. And it, we used photography in that. We were both we both studied photography, and we were the photo staff, so we had a black and white dark room, and we did all the photographs there for that. Oh, that sounds really fun. And it was really fun. How was it received? It was it was received really well, and, and that's, I mean, that's the first time that I did make a publication or a project which engaged a larger community, mm -hmm. and I didn't foresee what that would mean. You know, I thought, like, oh, we're going to make this, and maybe people will be interested, and maybe people won't, or whatever. It doesn't really matter. But what happened is that people really embraced it. And not only did they embrace, like, figure, finding out what we were doing all day in our jobs, but they embraced the language that we used, which was this sort of, like, kind of classic and a little bit coy kind of language. Uh -huh. And people would write us letters to the editor, or they would give us guest columns. And it was all, like, in this sort of in the same way that we were speaking. Oh, that's interesting. And so it was really interesting. And, and people outside of the observatory, we had fans outside of the observatory and inside of the observatory. <laughs> so we had, like, the head of the observatory was totally into it, and people were, like, waiting, you know, when's the next issue coming out? You know, really excited in the observatory, but then also, like, people in the community who sort of fetishized the observatory or our friends really got into it. And so it, it had this really diverse readership, which was really a lot of fun. And so how many, I mean, what was your circulation at that point? I mean, were you just doing this, uh, producing um, it on a copy well, machine? or 200. 200, yeah. yeah. And were you selling it then? Yeah, it yeah. was 10 cents a copy, and we didn't make change. Oh. <laughs> it was That's... 10 cents a copy only because we still had the old Xerox codes from Art Center, so we would go up to Art Center and copy them there. Uh. And then um, <laughs> Daniel also worked at this one-hour photo place, and so he would do, we would do these color inserts every once in a while, and so he would just do those for free. So the 10 cents went towards the purchase of our stapler. We had one of those staplers that you could staple in the middle. Oh, yeah. So it took us a few issues until we were really in the black from the stapler <laughs> purchase, which was like $17. The one office <laughs> supply that you needed. Yeah, That's and we didn't great. make change, so, you know, sometimes we'd get a quarter. Well, as long as you're upfront about the fact that you're making change, then it's fair game, you know. Yeah, I mean, we were, sometimes people would give us a dollar. It was like amazing. And you're like, but wow, would you like ten? Or no, you can't because we don't make no, change. No, 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 we don't. Yeah, so <laughs> it worked out really well, and and I I made it on a, a Macintosh um, PowerBook 100, which had four megabytes of RAM. Oh wow. And it and I used Quark. I had like Quark Express from you know the the dark ages, and it worked. As far as the zines go, I mean, are you still, are you looking to do another one soon? Well, the, the tracts are all physically printed. The, you know you know about religious tracts? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So someone, someone, a friend of mine was talking to, and, and I was like, yeah, I'm doing this project with religious tracts. And he's like, nobody knows what a religious tract is. Like, it's not something that 
anyone's ever heard of. And, and I thought, oh, I thought that they were something that was really common. Well, so, why don't you, go ahead and explain it. So for the people at home who don't know, they're not going to be left out of this conversation. So go ahead and give your, uh, you know, your brief Well, my understanding of the religious tracts are these, they, they are these modestly manufactured, published, uh, usually offset print, kind of on crappy paper that have religious messages on them that are given to people or um, left on people's windshields or stacked around or whatever, and they spread the message. And they're all basically, they're all different, but they're all basically the same. Like the end message is pretty much the same, which is um, accept Jesus and you will be saved. So I had this idea that the religious tract is this brilliant way of getting ideas out in the world because it's really small and it's really portable and it's something that's small enough that you would you could read the whole thing in a sitting mm-hmm. and it's and it's modest enough that the way that it's printed is not like overly expensive or it's not overly glossy or it's not like sort of bigger it's not it doesn't have any pretensions like it's a very unpretentious way of um handing out ideas. So mm-hmm. I decided to make religious tracks. So are you going to, like, put um, them in people's windshields, like under their, their uh, well, windshield wiper or something? Or No, I I am in this, it's in an, I'm in an exhibition at the Baltimore, the Contemporary Museum in Baltimore, and the exhibition is about, like, artists who start small businesses in some way or have some sort of small business front. And so my small business front is this thing called the Tract House, and I have the tracthouse.com, and people can look at also, it's going to be just this, these stacks of tracks available for people to come and take whichever ones they want at the museum, and then hopefully it will also it'll be somewhere else at some point, too. Okay, so this might be something you exhibit somewhere else. Down yeah, the I think it's like an I think it's an ongoing project. I, there's this place in LA which distributes tracks that I went to visit because I used to ride my bike by it all the time, and I was kind of intrigued, like what is this place? Mm-hmm. So I went and visited it, and what it was were these long tables with thousands of religious tracts stacked up in these beautiful, beautiful stacks. And you can go and purchase them by the pound so that you can distribute them. And I thought, well, it's, this is such a great way of distribution that I'd like to adopt it for my ideas and my friends' ideas. So instead of a, a tract that you know is going to be about Jesus, what if you had a tract that was about you know, a manifesto on knitting or something about vegan diet or nutrition or riding your bike or, you know, things that I care about or things that my friends care about. So I'm not censoring anybody if someone wants to do something about, um, you know, whatever they want to do about that I don't agree with, that's fine. Mm-hmm. But it's more about having the tract as this active uh, distribution model. And now are you going to be selling them by the pound too? No, no. they're not going to be. I don't think I'm going to sell them by the pound. I think that we're just going to give them away at the track house in Baltimore. Mm-hmm. And then there are some other upcoming shows I have. Maybe we'll have a table of them. People can take them. It sounds like a really interesting idea. I mean, I think that's going to be fun for people. And it will be probably surprising to some of them at first if they don't realize they're expecting something very religious and it's actually about knitting. You know, that'll be interesting to see. I, yeah, I hope so. I mean, I hope I, we'll see what happens. We'll see what I get. I mean, I'm just sending invitation letters out like this weekend to try and get people involved in writing tracks. So, if you want to write a tract, I'm looking for tracts. Okay. I'd have to think about what subject I would write a tract about. Um, yeah. To give some it thought to that. Anything. Yeah. I mean, I wrote one about, like, the evils of the, the thin paper toilet seat cover. I, I'm not sure which, what people are going to write about, you know? I mean, it's really it's so open that 
who knows? Well, I think that's going to actually make it more fun because you'd be, it'd be really interesting to see, you know, if you were to give out topics, it's not going to be the same as if someone is very passionate about something that, you know, you would never, it would never occur to you to have them write about. So I think that would right. be really interesting. Now, are you going to post these on the, online too um, for well, people that... I think on the tracthouse.com, I will have them posted. I'm actually right now working on just putting some uh, inspiration tracks up so that people who don't know what a tract is can, see can look and, and see what a tract looks like. Now, are you looking for submissions from the public, or are you mostly trying to keep this into a, a smaller, manageable number of tracks that you have? Um, well, we have enough funding to produce about 75 to 100 different tracks. Okay. And I would like to do as many as possible and, and hopefully collect more of those so that once we have 100 out, we can put out the next hundred. Okay, and so how so, how many? So yeah, I'm looking for submissions from anybody who wants to write a track. Okay. Anybody who has something to say, which is basically everybody. So they could just email you. Mm-hmm. Okay, and then those would be distributed. Just uh, are you just doing small runs of each one then? I think there will be like a couple. I'm hoping for either a thousand or two thousand of each one, and then everybody who submits a track gets like twenty-five to fifty copies of oh, their cool. particular track. That's cool. Yeah. Well, this is a, well, like all of your ideas. I mean, this is a pretty. Uh, I, <laughs> you come up with some cool stuff. I have to say, I think it's really, really interesting. Now, I know you spend a lot of time riding your bike. At least you used to. Or do you still do that? Is that your main mode I of transportation? Do. I do. It is my main transportation, but unfortunately, I'm not riding as much as I used to, just because I don't know. I'm staying at home more, but I still commute to school on my bicycle. I do ride my bike a lot. Well, more than most people, probably. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and it would make sense if you're staying home more that you would probably not be riding your bike as much. So don't yeah, feel bad I mean, about I think that. that when, I'm, when I go, it's not that I'm staying home more, I shouldn't say that, but like when I do have to go somewhere, oftentimes it's to bring something big, like to mail something, like a FedEx. I was driving a bunch of times for the yurt. Or right, like you're not going to ride your airport. bike with the yurt on your back. Yeah. Like, I can't ride my, my bike with like a 30-pound box of knitting to FedEx. Like, that's just... <laughs> So, you know, I have to then drive, and then I feel really guilty, or, you know, it's, like, really late at night, and I have to go to FedEx or Kinko's or whatever. Sometimes I'll, I'll drive, or, like, I'm driving to the airport. That's a, that's a car drop trip. I feel like I've been in my car a lot in the last few days, or last few weeks, I should say. Have you always been someone who preferred bike transportation to driving a car? Or no. did you just give it up? No, I mean, in high school, I rode my bike to school and stuff. And, you know, when I was a kid, I rode my bike a lot. And then I went through a long period of time where I didn't ride my bike much at all. And then um, I, when I lived in, I lived in South Pasadena, which is very sort of bike-friendly around there. So I rode a lot to, to the gym or wherever. And then I started riding recreationally. And around the time that we were talking about going to war with Iraq, I decided to see, I, just to experiment to see if I could just just ride my bike. So this was around, I don't know, 2002 or something, and I and I thought, what if I what if I just gave up my car for one month in Los Angeles and only rode my bike? Could I could I manage? Is it possible? And so that's when I so I did that, and basically it was like not only possible, but it was like totally addictive and amazing, and and so I never really stopped after that. Well, yeah, I imagine that it's yeah, probably, uh, you know, not only you, it's great exercise, but you also don't have to stress out about traffic as much. Well, of course, riding your bike can be a, that's a skill, you have to be skillful if you're in traffic riding a bike. Well, I mean, you just have to not be afraid of it. Mm-hmm. But I, 
yeah, the traffic thing was is, is so stressful to sit in a car. I cannot stand sitting in a car. Well, because with a bike, you can always, you know, kind of take a shortcut, hop on up on the sidewalk. Yeah, I mean, there's ways to get where you need to go. Keep moving while cars are stopped. Exactly. So. And then you just look at people in cars, and you're just like, you never want to be them. They're just in their <laughs> car. They're trapped. Right. They're like, you smell their weird air freshener coming out of the out of the um, <laughs> windows. Or like, listen to their music, and they they're eating French fries, and they just look fat and upset, and like. <laughs> It's greasy and it's just Yeah, it would be great if more people could ride their bikes. I know. Well, they can. They're just lazy. (laughs) People should ride their bikes. I mean, they're just—I don't know why they don't. They're lazy. They think it's too scary. People have a lot of excuses for not riding their bikes. I know. For me, I I live about ten miles from my job, and Mm -hmm. that's my first problem. But uh, the transportation system in Grand Rapids is—you know—we're midwestern town and we just don't have and i i really wish i mean i would i would love it if i could you know hop on the bus and if i couldn't you know you could put your bike right on the front if you want to use it later in the day to tra- to travel around mm-hmm. but to not have to drive i would love to give up my car and not have to drive as a reporter if i told my editor yeah i'll get there in about an hour because <laughs> yeah. i'm riding my yeah. bike it totally mm-hmm. sucks but i would love that because um I'm actually training for a triathlon, so that would actually help me with my training to get the miles yeah. in during the day. But, um, but I think, I mean, I think what you're saying is totally valid because a lot of people, we all have these excuses for why we can't do something. And when it really boils down to it, if you really want to do something, you find a way to do it, you know. And it would be fantastic if this country wasn't so reliant on foreign oil. I mean, if we rode well, our bikes, yeah, we wouldn't I mean, have the problems that we have today. I think the other thing is that. There's some statistics, which is really an ugly one, like that, like 40 or 70 percent, some like huge number of trips that we make outside of our home are within three miles. Mm-hmm. So those are the trips that could be biked, you right. know, and that, and that can make such a huge difference. Is if you just bike when you're going somewhere that's two miles away, As that's really to. different than saying, oh, I'm going to change my entire lifestyle. I'm going to do my 25 mile commute to work. I'm going to kill myself over it. It's like. You can just ride to the grocery store. Right, the and then you, you last a day on your 25-mile commute and give it up forever, you know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But although I used to have, I used to commute 11 miles to school, and it was amazing, 13 miles to school or something, and it was amazing. It was so fun. It was well, not only that, you get your exercise day. in, and it's built right into your day, you know, yeah. which is really cool. And so it feels and like you're... It's so fun. So it's what kind of bike world. do you have? Do you have, um, like, a road bike or a just regular... I have, I have two bikes. <laughs> I have a Bianchi road bike, which is really beautiful and sweet. And then I have my father's, um, it's a 1968 Dawes Realm Rider, and it was a 10-speed English bike that I made into a fixed gear. Cool. So it's like a, it's a yeah. And I change them off. I get into, like, modes. Sometimes I'm on my Bianchi for months, and then I change the fixed gear for months. So do you like to do, like, road races or anything like that? I mean, no. do you ever do anything like that? No. No, I totally stopped riding recreationally yeah. when I started commuting. I used to ride a lot more recreationally. Sometimes I do, like, fun rides every once in a while, but I haven't done it lately, unfortunately. Well, I've, I, I still have to buy a bike. I, I did a um, 100-mile ride last year on, uh, <laughs> on a mountain bike. Oh, it God. was ridiculous. I mean, because I, yeah. I was like, my whole philosophy was like, I don't deserve a road bike unless I can do this on this bike, you know, because people are like, you got to buy a road bike. I'm like, no, I've never done this before. They're like, that's why you should buy a road bike <laughs> to do this. And I, I made it to the end, but um, people were coasting faster than I was able to pedal. Like, 
Yeah, but that's a great attitude. Like, if you can do it on a mountain bike, it would be so much easier on a road bike, and now you can get a road bike. Yeah, now I kind of feel like I've earned my road bike. Of course, now, it's like, you really, though, have to study up on the, it's just like anything. You know, you with your first knitting machine, or you're trying to buy new camera equipment. If you don't know what you're really looking at, like, you kind of have to study up, and I haven't put the time into figuring out what I would be spending a lot of money on, you know. I know, it's really, yeah. You have to find someone who knows. You're right, because I kind of don't have the kind of nerdy interest in bikes that, you know, I would make things easier for me. But anyway, well, I think it's fabulous that you ride your bike um, all over yeah. the place. I hope I, people will be inspired. I share, I share that, non, that, that, in, that non-interest. Oh, the non-interest? Yeah, you just want to be able to get something that works, you know. Yeah, and I'm like can... that with all my equipment. It's like I don't really care if it's the latest and greatest. I don't know how many megapixels it gets or how many, like, you know, what the gear ratio is or what, what kind of shifters or... Any of that stuff, it's just like, I just want it to work. Right. I'm so, not, I don't, I don't geek out on gear, but I do love my bike. Yeah, well, it sounds like, well, you got to find one that fits you and, you know, you're going to enjoy riding because it's, um, you know, if you're, especially if you're using it as your main mode of transportation, you know, you want to have something yeah. that works for you. Do you find that people, you meet people and they, you start talking about how you ride your bike and, you know, how you're vegetarian. I mean, do you feel like you're influencing people and they're like, hey, that sounds kind of cool. That makes sense. I'm going to change my life. I mean, how profound of a, that, you know, impact. That's the hope. You, yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, <laughs> have you, have you had experiences that where people, you get into a discussion about bike riding or something and people are like, oh, okay, yeah, I totally see where you're coming from. Yeah, totally I mean, that's why I started Saddle Store, the zine, is because people kept asking me, like, is it possible? How is it possible? How can a woman do this? What route do you take? What do you do this? How? You know, and so I, I started Saddle Store as a way to answer all those questions. And, and yeah, I, I do get emails from people who are like, I'm moving to L.A. and was really inspired by your zine. I think that I can do it. Or, you know, students who ask me about it and maybe then they'll start writing. So I I think in a little way, maybe it influences people every once in a while. I think that's great. And how do your students react to your work, like the the knitting that you do? I mean, are they even aware of what you're doing? I mean, is it something that you talk to them about or is it just something you kind of separate? You know, you have your your job and you're you're teaching them photography or... I don't really... I mean, I wear the sweaters to school and sometimes they'll be like where'd you get that sweater? Or, or sometimes they just don't even notice. I mean, I'm really available on the web if people are interested. Right. And so I figure that if they're interested, they can find out what the hell I'm doing and ask me about it, and <laughs> barely anybody does. Really? Because, yeah. I mean, I just think that that's so much more interesting than the typical instructor. You know what I mean? I mean, if you're wearing some sweater that's, like, totally, you know, has this big statement on there that you can't buy yeah. at Macy's, you know. Um <laughs> Well, I don't know, maybe they're just being cool about it, but no, they don't usually, it's weird, I mean, they're undergraduates, and, like, there's other teachers that teach there that are that are kind of super famous, and they also seem to have no idea who those people are, so it's not just, they just, I don't know, I don't really get it, these students. Well, so, what advice do you have for people out there that are trying to make, you know, kind of make their way in the world as far as art goes, and they want to get their work out there. I mean, you've really done a great job of using the web to get your your work out there. You also use zines, and you know, what has been the most effective thing for you to actually get noticed by people like Eve, you know, and get commissioned to do a major V Day project? Well, that I mean, like getting involved with a with a gallery, being represented by a gallery can be really helpful. But I know that's not. I mean, that's not within everyone grasp at the beginning like mm-hmm. I mean I went for 15 years just kind of making stuff and then all of a sudden I got a gallery so I don't know I guess just don't give up and keep doing what you're doing 
And I think that, that now with the Internet, it is easier for people to get their work out than it was for me, who was doing zines that had a, a press run of 200. And then when I went online, like all of a sudden I got this larger audience, but I'm not sure if it's the same kind of audience as, as something that's published too. So I don't, I don't know. Do I have any advice? Mm, don't give up. Um, don't be lazy. <laughs> <laughs> don't be lazy. Don't drive your car. Don't be lazy and no excuses. <laughs> <laughs> no whining. Just do it. Yeah. Well, where do you think you get that, that attitude from? Are your parents artists or? No. Well, my mother makes stuff. She makes amazing quilts. My father's a lawyer. And what do your know. parents think of your sweaters? Oh, they're in. My mom yeah. wears one. My mother has one and she wears it all the time. And my, my parents, thank God, are uh, of the same political stripe as me. <laughs> I, I think it would be really difficult to be from a Republican family, although I know people who are. Yeah. But, like, it's just amazing. I talked to my 92-year-old my grandmother about Barack Obama, you know, and how excited she is. And That's pretty cool. Yeah, it's really great. Does your well, grandma, they are from Illinois. But. Does your grandma have a sweater? She doesn't have a sweater, no. There's a great YouTube video of her hitting the George Bush pinata that we made for her birthday last year. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Um, so you guys seem to have a lot of fun as a family mm -hmm. then. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, got, I don't know. Not I don't really? Know. I'm, in like Cal well, I'm in California. They're all in Illinois. Oh, well, that wouldn't be as fun, yeah. 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 Well, there's not a lot of family. It's not that fun. I don't know. I'm an only child, so maybe that's part of, like, an attitude of kind of you got to do stuff yourself. So how did you get from Illinois to California? I moved here in a moving truck. <laughs> I mean, I went, I went to undergrad school in Rochester, New York, and then I moved across from California to do a go to grad school, basically. And do you it's think, more complicated than that, but yeah. Well, do you so plan to stay there, you think? Well, I've been here for like 17 years. So that's home to you now, for the most I keep, part? I keep thinking I'm going to leave, but I don't know where I would go. Where should I go? Should I move to Michigan? You could try it. I moved from uh, Detroit Rock City to uh, the, the west side of the state, and I thought I'd be here for two years tops. I can't, came to this job and thought, man, I'm out of here in a couple years, and I'm here mm -hmm. probably to stay. Um, <laughs> it's been about a decade, so I'm thinking... Yeah, I've kind yeah. of put some roots down. It's I feel the same way. It's like, okay, where would I go? You know, because I'm I'm finding that I'm getting along just fine here. So. Yeah, I really liked Detroit when I was there in November. Yeah, it's it kind of needs a little help as far as uh, the downtown revitalization, and they're having some issues, as you've probably it's the well publicized political issues there um, with the leadership of the, the city. Um, so yeah, yeah, it's a. Uh, city in a bit of a crisis but there's a lot of things going on art wise in the city yeah, and, I like that yeah and I, I do have high hopes that it will someday become vibrant and it would be great to see that happen you know where I the, think it's sort of more fun to be in a city that isn't happening than a city that is happening like I have friends that are moving to Portland because that's where people are riding bicycles Portland is super bicycle friendly, but yeah. I really prefer being in a city that's not particularly bicycle friendly and being sort of like the person that's bicycling. As opposed to being one of thousands doing it? Yeah. I yeah. Don't, you know, then it becomes like this love fest about like, oh, we all love our bikes, we all love each other and our bikes. And I don't know. I kind of like the, I mean, that's sort of what's attractive about Detroit, too. 
Well, it's on. You kind of like doing the nonconformist kind of thing, you know, where mm-hmm. everyone's in their car eating French fries and you're biking along in a sweater. You know? Yeah, I, I guess. I yeah. Think. But I like. Yeah, I liked Michigan. I was born in Michigan. You were born in Michigan, where? Yeah, in um, Ann Arbor, where my parents were going to school. Oh, interesting. Well, that's pretty cool. So, how long did you live here? Three months. Oh, three months. Then you got the hell yeah. out of the state. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was born there, and then we moved to, to Chicago land. Yeah, so that's kind of that's where you that's where you grew up, is Chicago. Yeah, I think one of the things that makes your, your work so interesting is because it is just different, you know. Especially people who are using traditional art forms, and we haven't talked about this at all. Just, I, I think it's awesome that your choice of using knitting and like the knitting machine to to do something that's you're making a statement. And um, do you have any projects you're working on for this upcoming? or the, the presidential election cycle that we're in right now? Yes. Do you care to share any details of what you're working um, on? Well, it's not. It's, I'm going to be doing a project, a sweater project at a, at, yeah, but I, I don't I don't have, like, anything in writing yet. Okay. I don't want really to talk about it too much, but okay. yes, I'm doing some. So are you going to be able to produce hundreds of sweaters now that you're experienced with your machine? No, <laughs> they still take a really long time. Yeah, I mean, how long does it take? The, well, the design usually takes about a day to figure out how it's going to be in the computer. And then the actual knitting, if nothing, if absolutely nothing goes wrong, you can knit the four panels that make up a sweater in one day. But that rarely happens because usually something happens. And you have wrong. to stop, yeah. Often it's, it's operator error. I'll take credit for the, for the f*** up. But, um, <laughs> and, then, and then stitching it together, it's all hand-sewn together, and all of the ends have to be woven in, and the neckline is is done by hand on really tiny needles so that takes a day so basically like if you're working eight hours a day which i'm usually working more than that but um you can do it in about three and a half three days three days maybe okay one sweater ish you would have had to start about five years ago if you're going to do hundreds of sweaters for this uh, yeah i really can't and and unfortunately i i would love to do mass produce some of them so more people could wear them but I think the only option is China oh, yeah. or, or finding other people that have my same knitting machine to do at home, which is difficult because, as I said before, like knitting machine people aren't usually the same demographic as lefties, right, right. liberals. So, well, what about that woman that contacted you? Does she have the same uh, Well, she's mind? great, but I think she's going to do her own thing. Okay. For, for the yurt, I looked into, I went on to one of these news groups that I'm a member of and I asked if anyone was interested in doing some contract knitting and like five people emailed me and I emailed them back and I said well before we go any further you should know what you're getting into here's some of my work um, one of them wrote back and said I can't be involved with your project the other ones just didn't write back and the woman that I actually did get to knit for me respected my right to say what I had to say but she wasn't really but I don't think she's on the same page you know it was right. like she's sort of a, believes in free speech and so you're able to kind of see eye to eye on that basic point yeah but like also she had been asked to to knit something pornographic at one point and she had said no so she does have a limit so then i had to be really careful about the panels that i was sending her even though she said i didn't have to be careful i felt like oh i don't i don't want to bring you know anything that that might be offensive into her right her world so i had to be really careful so I don't know how, I mean, I have two knitting machines, and it would be great if I could have someone come here and, and help me working here, but it really also takes the right kind of personality to deal with these machines. Hearing you talk about your work, I get the sense that you actually really enjoy the fact that you're 
well, it may be frustrating at times when something goes wrong. You like being the one who's making these sweaters and not having 12 people working for you making well, sweaters, you know. I don't love the knit- I don't love knitting on the knitting machine. I wish I didn't have to do it, honestly. Okay. But I don't want to go to China for knitting for knitting stuff, and it's I don't. It's really hard to train somebody. I don't know. That's my problem, I guess. Yeah. But no, I don't have any love for the knitting machine. Of course, I mean it's nice. It's fun to like do all the handwork and stitch them together. And maybe I'm over that. Yeah. Well, if there's any. Uh closet uh you know people that are great at, at knitting and um, knitting machines and they're looking for their big break they might be able to be your intern or something yeah if anyone <laughs> lives in la and, and wants to learn how to use the knitting machine and isn't afraid of like mechanical devices that might freak out at any moment send them my way <laughs> we'll do that we'll do that I- i'm interested in the reactions you get to your work have you had any like really bizarre reactions or responses to your work where you might be wearing one of your sweaters and someone just kind of reacts in a way that's just not typical? No. No. People just, do people normally <laughs> no. just don't say anything? I mean, it's, it's kind of, it's this weird thing. Like, you can wear sweaters with the most inflammatory statements. Like, well, give me an example. Say, like, what kind of okay, sweater? Okay, okay, here's the one reaction I had. I've had, two, I've had, I think, like, two reactions from strangers of my sweaters. One was I was at Whole Foods ordering a sandwich, and I was wearing a sweater that on the front said, what's your favorite thing about the war on terror? And the sandwich person looked at me and said, your sweater. And I said, what? And she said, your sweater is my favorite thing about the war on terror. <laughs> that was one. <laughs> then the other response I had, I mean, it's so ridiculous, but I, I, I feel like people should always be like, oh, my God, what are you doing? Okay, but no. Oh, no. Okay, there were three responses. So another response was I was at an airport in Colorado, and I was wearing a sweater that said, keep abortion legal on the front. And the back said, pro-life is pro-living. And I made that sweater because I thought that the, the phrase pro-living was kind of a great phrase. Like, I'm pro-living, you know, but right. I'm not pro-life. Right. No, it was pro-life is pro-living. That's what it was. Right. Like, pro-life is pro-life. So I was like, okay, I want to reclaim the phrase pro-life because I think that, that people who are anti-abortion shouldn't, like, only own that phrase. Like, everybody who's interested in, like, living life to its fullest and sort of pro-positive should have the term pro-life also. So I was wearing the sweater. The front says keep abortion legal. The back says pro-life is pro-living. And this guy, like on a respirator, this old man, who was sitting with his family of like very conservative-looking people, came up to me and he was like, I like your sweater. (laughs) And I had no idea if he had seen what the front said or if he saw what the back said and misinterpreted it as some sort of, like, pro-life sweater. Was he behind you or in front of you when he was making the statement? I don't know. He was, like, over to the side, and I think I was wearing a scarf that was covering the keep abortion legal, maybe. Oh, and, okay. and I thought, like, oh, no, what if he got the wrong message? And then so you don't, don't want him to, like, see it and then die right on the spot or something. Yeah, so I didn't I didn't question, like, oh, what is it that you like about it? But, um, <laughs> yeah, that was one. And then one time I wore a sweater that said, it's a joke. Did you hear what Bush said about when asked about Roe versus Wade? And the back says, I don't care how they get out of New Orleans, in quotes. Like, he doesn't care if they row or they wade. And so someone said to me, do you really not care how they get out of New Orleans? Because they oh. just saw the back of the sweater. And I was like, oh. Um, but for the most part, I've worn sweaters that have, like, suicide belts knitted into them with the word security on the back. Like, just a sweater that says security as if I'm a security guard. And people, I've worn these through airports repeatedly. I've worn war on terror sweaters in the airport. 
no one ever says anything. And you thought is, that you might actually be, and you sound, are you a little disappointed by that? Well, I'm just surprised because in this, in this sort of like over security obsessed time when people are like Cindy Sheehan went to the State of the Union address wearing a t-shirt that said the amount of casualties in Iraq at the time that this t-shirt was made, I guess, and she was kicked out and arrested. And, and I, the first thing I thought is, well, I have a sweater like that. I mean, could I wear my sweater to the State of the Union address and get kicked out? Like, and I think I probably could because people have a very different approach to sweaters, and that's one of the things that I think makes this project really interesting is that if it's in a sweater, suddenly the message is either diluted or sort of fuzzier and warmer, but it's still the same sort of aggressive right. um, message, I think. But I think people take the sweaters in a more confused or different or accepting or something way. So I, you know, there was that thing in a, a jet and jet blue kicked someone off the airline for wearing a sweater that said something in Arabic, but yet I'm flying across the country with a sweater that has, like, suicide bombs knitted in that says, when there's nothing left to, to burn, set yourself on fire. And I'm thinking, like, this is kind of a sweater that someone should kick me off an airplane for, or at least, like, say, you know, your sweater's inappropriate, but it, it doesn't happen, and that's always really surprising to me. And so how do you think you would respond if it, someone did say that, if they said, excuse me, ma'am, we're going to have to ask you to disembark? I mean, would you be like, okay, finally, I'm getting a response? I mean, I that, don't know. No. <laughs> I mean, I'd probably get, I'd probably be angry. I'd probably be angry, but I, I also, I feel like in some ways the sweaters sort of fit through the cracks in a, in a really kind of great way. Yeah. Well, it's allowing you to have a commentary and, you know, in in, in, a, in a format that, you know, other people are either too lazy to, you know, engage you on or whatever, but you're able to kind of get your message out and go about mm -hmm. your business. So, but it is fascinating how if it was a T-shirt with, you kind of wonder, you know, if it was a T-shirt with a suicide belt, you know, printed on it, um, mm -hmm. how would people react to that? So yeah. it's really interesting to see your growing collection of sweaters. Do you sell these sweaters? I mean, do you ever, do people have them in their private collections or what happens to your sweaters after uh, you make them? A few people have them. But it's not something I mean, you're looking to, you know, sell your sweaters at, you know, Renegade or anything like that? Well, they're all for sale, but, you know, they're expensive and people don't want to pay that much for a sweater. But, yeah, some of them have sold recently. And then a lot of them, I mean, I think I had this idea at the beginning that I really wanted people to wear them a lot. Mm -hmm. But lately I've realized that having them on the web and having them in exhibitions, like they're in a lot of exhibits traveling around, it does allow them a wider audience than just having them, people wear them. Like, my mother has one, but, you know, she doesn't wear it very often. She's, people who have them are kind of scared to wear them because they're precious or whatever. Well, what does hers say? Hers, she has one of the ones about the weather underground. It says, it doesn't take a weatherman to know which way the wind blows. She's not yeah. wearing it every day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, but I wear them all the time. Yeah. To, my, to the chagrin of my gallerist, who's like, what do you mean you're wearing those sweaters? <laughs> they're, they're art. Oh, what that's if you funny. get something on them? I'm thinking, whatever. <laughs> well, and it's so warm, and you still wear sweaters out where you well, live. Well, it's not that warm here. I mean, but I don't wear them in the, in the summer. And, and, like, right now, I don't have very many of them because they're all at the gallery or at an exhibition or, yeah, they're not around. They're not that available. I have my Keep Abortion Legal sweater I've been wearing a lot this winter. And how much do they run? Someone wants to buy one of your sweaters. How much is one of your originals? They're kind of a lot. 
Um, they'll have to talk to the gallery about okay. that. Okay. We'll, we'll let them handle that privately. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's okay. not something I want to talk about. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I finally get to a question that you don't want to answer. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to answer that. They're expensive. They're ridiculously expensive. Yeah, well, it sounds like, I mean, if it's taking you three days to make it on your machine and then all the hand finishing that goes into it. and uh, I, Now, do you, before that even, do you sketch the, those out or grid them out before you even get to the point where you're knitting them? Because I'm assuming well, that... Well, they're, they're all designed in Photoshop. Okay. Okay, and so then you move from there to your... Now, does your knitting machine hook up to your computer? My knitting machine hooks up to a PC, and the, and the PC reads the disc that I burn from the Macintosh. I see. Okay, so this is a very complicated It's process. a little bit complicated. Yeah. It's, not, it's, not like, it's not unbelievable, but yeah, it's a little bit like complicated. Yeah. Well, do you think that you'll be moving into another... I mean, is there going to come a point where you're like, okay, I've done enough sweaters, I'm going to do something else now? I'm going to do pants. Well, I've been making, well, I made the yurt, and I'm interested in making more large knitted structures. Like, I really want to make a bender, which is like a, another kind of tent. Okay. And I, li I like the idea that, like, a sweater can be more than just one person can wear, but it mm -hmm. can be like a whole kind of structural, architectural thing, too. Mm -hmm. So I've been doing that. I've been doing these big wall banners. But, yeah, I, I keep thinking I should just end the knitting thing. Well, I'm not it. suggesting that. I think it's I think it's great. I mean, because there's, as you said, I mean, there's no one else is doing this, you know, on the scale that you're doing it. So I think, uh, no, you should keep doing it. I, I definitely am not suggesting that you stop. <laughs> People no, are going to no. be very upset with me if they're like, yeah, nice going, Jen. Uh, you're telling her to stop That wouldn't doing. be your fault. No, I, I always <laughs> think, oh, I should do something else. But I, I don't know. I, I, like, I like the project. And I like mixing, being able to mix it up. I mean, I'm glad that I'm going to be able to do this track thing and that's totally different, but it's kind of, it's from the same place. Like, mm -hmm. I like that the, the mediums I work with may on the surface be very different, but they're all very consistent in terms of the tone and in terms of sort of where they're coming from. Yeah, obviously, text is a big factor. It's all about messages and, and communicating. Yeah, I like that. Do you plan to put a tract on a sweater? Uh, I may do a wall, maybe a wall piece, or I don't know. It depends. It depends what comes in or what comes out of this. I'm not saying no. Yeah, so what is your deadline? When do you want, if people want to submit something like to you? Like April 1st. Okay, so you need to, they can just email you then? Yeah. Okay. I set up a special email address for this project, and it's the tracthouse at gmail.com. It's always weird to have, like, a website for me because I get so little response, and I have no, and, but then all these people seem to know about me in some way, but they never respond to me. And I have no idea how many people are looking at it. Do you have a, a Ravelry? Um, I have. I registered. I mean, I got on the list, and then they, they sent me an invitation. And I registered, but then I never went. And I haven't taken the time to just fill out my, you know, do whatever you have to do to set up your space there. Are you on Ravelry? Yeah. Yeah. How are you like that? I think it's kind of fun. Has that brought you more people, like, into your... I don't know. I yeah. mean, people, like, want to be your friend or... Like oh, so friends you or whatever. Oh, I didn't know and that's they never, how it works. They never like write you to tell you where they found out about you or why they want to be your friend. So it's kind of weird. Like these people are just like so and so added you to their friends, and then I'm oh. not really sure who so and so is, and I feel kind of weird. I don't know. There's a weird thing about that. But, so um, is it kind of like I don't have a MySpace or whatever those you know the yeah, other like Facebook sort of for knitters. But okay. The forums are the forums can be really interesting. Like there's all these liberal knitting groups and art knitting groups and. 
machine knitting. There's a machine knitting group I just joined, and oh, it's kind of cool. cool to see what people are talking about. There's like a heavy metal knitting group, and there's a bunch of like punk tattoo knitting and witch knit, witch craft witch or something. You know, witches who knit. That's so, cool. Well, that's the thing yeah. that's so interesting about the needle arts now is that you can't stereotype it like you used to be able to. I mean, seriously, it's it's so awesome to see people from all walks of life engaging yeah. in this art form. It's really cool. I think that's one yeah. of the best parts about it. So, Definitely. so you, I can, if I go on Ravelry, I can try to send you a, a, a weird little note about asking you to be my friend or whatever. Yeah, you can goes. be my friend, but I'll know you, so I'll be like, oh, I'll be your friend. But yeah, it's, and so if I have someone that doesn't know you, send you an email. Yeah, that would be kind of... Sure. I'm just not sure what to do, like what the protocol is. Like someone sends me, so-and-so has added you to their friends. I think, well, I'd like to just be their friend back, but I don't really know them, and then I feel weird about it. So basically, if someone sends me a note and tells me, like, hi, I'm so-and-so, then I'll be their friend. But I think it's like an age thing. I think I'm being too, like, my idea of etiquette is really different from, like, the other the, the generation underneath me's idea about etiquette. And, and I think it's, like, no problem for people to just be like, oh, I've listed you as my friend, whereas I'm really loath to just say someone's my friend. Right. Unless it's really their friend. Right, right. I think the MySpace generation doesn't have that sort of, like, hang-up that I have. But then I was I was talking to a local knitter, and, and she, her policy is, like, if she doesn't know him, she's not going to be their friend. And I thought, oh, that's a good policy. But then I thought, that's not very, like, online nice. But I guess if you're if they put you in their friends, they can put you in their friends without you agreeing that you're their friend. It doesn't really matter. I think I just need to not have a hang-up and just be friends with everyone who added me. And then <laughs> I'll have a million friends and I'll be popular and people will like me. And <laughs> Everyone will want to wear one of your sweaters and, you know, it'll be fabulous. Yeah. I've, but I have been updating that more than Steal the Sweater. Like, I stopped updating Steal the Sweater. I think I'm just really sick of HTML. Okay, so you're doing the Ravelry. So I have more, I have more newer sweaters up in Ravelry. Okay. Okay, well, and how do we find you in Ravelry? It's Lisa Ann. Okay. Ann Any. All right. Yeah, tell people to be my friend. Yeah, you've <laughs> got like 2,000 friends then. Yeah. That would be awesome. Yeah, well, hopefully 2,000 people will be listening. Otherwise, you're going to be like, she write, was alone. They have to write me and be like, hi, I want to be your friend because okay. I heard you on Craft Sanity. So that's what your, <laughs> that's what your, uh, that's what your protocol is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, I think that's really cool, and I think um, I, you know, I wish you the best of luck with everything you're doing. Of course, I don't think you need it because you seem to be on a roll, and I can't wait to see what you do next. Thank you, Lisa, for the interview. I really appreciate it and wish you all the best with your upcoming projects. And all you folks at home, don't be shy. If you have a track you'd like to write for Lisa, I'll post links on craftsanity.com so you can get in touch with her and check out her website. It's really cool. Also, I'm going to be posting the link to Lisa's Body Count Mitten pattern that she let me post back when I interviewed Sabrina Geschwantner for episode 61. Also, I'd like to announce the winner of the Knitting Out Loud giveaway. It's a giveaway for a copy of History of Hand Knitting. This is an audio copy of Richard Rutt's book. And the winner is Sabrina in Savannah, Georgia. I will be announcing the For the Love of Letters contest on the website this week, so look for that. Speaking of the website, craftsanity.com has kind of undergone some changes over the weekend. Jeff, my husband, worked very hard this past weekend to convert the site, kind of move it. It's in the same place, still craftsanity.com, but we moved it from a blog tool I was using that was right, kept everything right on my hard drive. I've switched to WordPress, so 
it, the site looks a little different, and we're going to continue to be changing it a little bit this week, so we just didn't want to shut it down. kind of gotten in this habit now of blogging every day, so I wanted to try to keep that going. So please bear with us as we change things around on the site. Um, hopefully we'll have things pretty much settled soon. You might need to change it if you're using RSS. I put a link on the old Craft Sanity site, so if you're not getting the new updates, the latest post um, from March 9th on craftsanity.com, the old site, will have instructions very, at the very top about what to do, what to rebookmark. And I apologize for the inconvenience, but we really, I mean, it was to the point where it was almost break. I mean, it, it just kind of had this feel like every time I posted, it would take a real long time. It would be crunching and crunching and crunching, and I thought, geez, this is going to die soon. Yeah, and let me know what you think. Um, we're kind of in the process now of just overhauling it, and you can now search everything. Uh, the site will be searchable. The comments feature, I think, is much nicer. So when I have contests, uh, since it has people put their email address in, which isn't published, but it's there, so that way if I have a contest and you're the winner, I can just go and retrieve that from the comments so you don't have to do this double posting where you – copy me on an email and all that nonsense so we actually might have a better smoother system now so that's great as I mentioned I'll be posting for the level letters the winners two winners of the book there later this week the Anna Maria Horner interview is coming up on Sunday so I have a lot of work to do before then but I'm planning to release that interview I've been getting emails from people who are looking forward to it as am I, I'm looking forward to this. It was a great chat, and I think you're going to enjoy it. And I'm so excited for the people who are going to get fabric out of this. Okay, um, I think that's it. I'm not going to do an after show today. I'm just going to cut you loose. So, Craft Sanity, my friends, it works for me. Thanks for listening to the Craft Sanity Podcast with Jennifer Ackerman Haywood. Visit CraftSanity.com for more information about today's guests and links to subscribing to the podcast. Want to support the show? Follow the link to vote for Craft Sanity on Podcast Alley once a month. You can also make a donation or buy goods at the Craft Sanity store. Have a suggestion for a future guest or have other feedback? Email jennifer at craftsanity.com. Thanks again for listening to Craft Sanity.